This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis. I'm the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing on ABC News. And I'm Fran Kelly from RM Breakfast. And on Wednesday this week, the minister at the centre of an historical rape allegation, the Attorney-General, Christian Porter, identified himself. He stepped forward to deny the claims. His denial was emphatic and emotional. Had the accusation ever been put to me before they were printed, I would have at least been able to say the only thing that I can say, and likely the only thing that I'm ever going to be able to say, And it's the truth, and that is that nothing in the allegations that have been printed ever happened. That was the Attorney-General, Christian Porter, in quite an extraordinary press conference. Um, It was compelling and concerning, PK, I think, to say the least. Um, He denied those allegations. He strongly made the case that he should not step aside for any further investigation of this matter because he said that would effectively mean a new norm in our democracy of resignation by allegation. Um, He was critical of the reporting of this historical allegation, referring to, quote, the wild, intense and restrained series of accusation. And then he told us he was going to take two weeks leave to basically monitor his mental health such as the toll this has taken. But, you know, PK, it was quite a lengthy um, press conference. The Attorney-General stood there in that disturbed state, I think it's fair to say, and took questions. And in amongst that, we got some other revelations we got from the Attorney-General. He confirmed he hadn't yet seen the anonymous email and the dossier containing these historical allegations. Nobody had shown it to him nor presumably has he asked for it in the past few days. And then he told us he didn't investigate either more fully back in November when a friend told him there were some rumours about him swirling about. So what we know from this press conference, PK, is that the Attorney-General is standing firm. He denies emphatically all the allegations. But we also now know that the Prime Minister had this dossier of allegations and didn't read it, nor did he give his Attorney-General a copy after he discussed it with him. And neither of these men made inquiries when rumours started to surface back in November, which seems particularly incurious to me. It doesn't mean guilt, of course, but the government, meanwhile, is fiercely resisting calls for any further inquiry. That's right. The other part of this, we are going to talk about this in a lot more length with Catherine Murphy, our guest, and and get into some other issues in a moment between just you and I, Fran, our private chat for for the (laughs) many people who download our podcast. But it is worth mentioning just a couple of other points I think important to make. Christian Porter himself compared his situation to that of Bill Shorten, the former opposition leader and still frontbencher in the Labor Party, you know, and 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 essentially saying that the same standard should be maintained for him as was for Bill Shorten. And the next day, as all, all of the people doing press have said, including the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, they've again tried to remind us of this case. Uh, I just think it's really important to, while looking at some of the similarities, also point out some of the differences. In the case of the Bill Shorten historical rape um, allegations. There was a 10-month police investigation. In fact, Bill Shorten was was subjected to that 10-month police inquiry and voluntarily agreed to a police interview. He didn't actually have to do that. 
but he actually was subjected to an interview from the Victorian police, uh, as was the alleged victim, who is still alive but was alive to be able to do that. So that's the different circumstances. The Attorney-General, by comparison, has never actually been interviewed by police. It has not been investigated, and the woman at the centre of the who's made these allegations has, has also now died, so the circumstances are different. So in terms of this call for an inquiry, which we'll talk about more with Catherine Murphy, that's the difference, this idea that, you know, well, why didn't we have an inquiry for Bill Shorten? Mm. That's why, because the actual justice system could do its work in, in a way that, in this case, it is impossible. The other point, I think, really important to make in comparison, and I think I reckon we need to call this, and I think it's really important, I do think there was a different standard. Bill Shorten was not asked to step down and there were no calls. There was a bipartisan sort of, you know, let the police do their work. Okay, that is different to what perhaps is being requested now. And maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe there has been a shift in our thinking, maybe even, dare I say it, maybe a positive one, which says that the level of accountability we expect from our political leaders is different. So maybe if I can be really controversial, perhaps Bill Shorten should have stepped down while the police were investigating. And I didn't call for that at the time. Mm. I'm not even, I'm, I'm actually very much just analysing this as it's happening and trying to be really respectful to the many victims who are being triggered here. But perhaps we need to say that our standards have been too low for too long. I think that's right. And perhaps if, if we were doing this now with Bill Shorten, I think there would be a different response. In Since that time, we've had the whole Me Too uh, movement and the change that's made. Uh, Labor Senator Penny Wong told me on breakfast that, you know, she described this as a moment of serious national reckoning because she said, you know, brave young women are now coming out, all women everywhere. She's saying enough, enough, enough is enough and they want and are demanding a change in the culture. I mean, and we'll talk about this later, I know, but we've got the Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, uh, sexual assault. Um, survivor demanding that the focus now be on those who have uh, are accused and have committed these crimes, not on those who are the survivors of sexual assault. And she's urging survivors to come forward and speak out. So there is a particular moment. This government is operating in this moment. The, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, echoes the words of the Prime Minister when he says that, you know, the police are the authorised body here. That is true within our legal framework. But we add at a moment here, this is the Attorney-General is the first lawmaker of the country and the, the, the question now needs to shift on whether it's an appropriate person, appropriate standard being brought to bear here um, for such a senior member of our cabinet and how we establish that. And, you know, do we need to forge some kind of new path? And that's why people are calling for an inquiry. We've never had one before like this. We don't know exactly how that would work, but many uh, pretty significant legal minds mm. are saying they think this is not out of the box. It can occur. It looks at the weight of evidence. It's not asking the Attorney General, as he kept saying yesterday, for him to disprove something which he said didn't happen. It's not about the onus of the burden of proof falling on him. Look, I'm I'm unclear how an inquiry could work and come to a conclusion, but at least it would signify that there has been a process engaged here. And the Attorney-General, for instance, could be um, properly and formally questioned on the allegations that are in this this dossier that, that I haven't seen, you know, which would be a lot different, I would imagine, than the questioning from the media pack this week. Oh, absolutely. And and that that is at the heart of this and that they are the differences. And this is a, this is a real this is different. This is different to anything I've seen in my career. And 
I think we are grappling with those changes and demands for a for a different system. And you know, many people are arguing. Hang on a minute. In the in the Liberal Party, you know, you can't just set up a new standard. Well, maybe people want a new standard. Maybe there is a demand from the the community now for a standard that hasn't been set before, mm. and that's really what we're discussing here. So, Christian Porter says that 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 would be a, a negative standard, that it would be a bad precedent. Well, the alternative view is that would be a, a positive precedent. So let's park it. We'll discuss it more with Catherine Murphy, our guest. In the meantime, uh, the government has been, well, you know, it's really struggled to get any oxygen on the uh, the issues that probably I, I reckon it, it wanted to talk about this week. One thing, of course, being uh, the economic news, 3.1% growth for the December quarter for the economy. That got completely drowned out with the release of these stories and, and this discussion around Christian Porter, but also with... The other big story this week, and I can't believe it's not the only focus because, <laughs> you know, in, the, in normal times it would be, but that's the Aged Care Royal Commission that finally reported. It's been looking at these issues for two years. There have been more than 10,500 submissions, 600 witnesses. This is a policy area that will dominate the government's work and the budget focus for years to come. And on releasing it this week, the Prime Minister... Uh, really, um, you know, t- tried to kind of say he, he took this very seriously, he was going to take action. But, Fran, I was a little frustrated because he held a press conference and he gave, I don't know, journalists like what appeared to be five seconds, and I'm exaggerating a little, but basically no time to digest this very thick report. And that annoyed me because I thought that was absolutely the wrong way to deal with what was very a very serious volume of work. Yeah. Now, the Prime Minister tried to get around that saying he's just, you know, releasing the recommendations. There'll be plenty of time to ask questions. But often, you know, when you have a Royal Commission or a, a major inquiry, like say the Henry Tax Review, there's a lockup for a start for journalists to get their head around it. I mean, there is a formal period to consider it. It was done, I think, didn't treat the the, the findings and the report that respectfully, personally, I think. And I think probably the timing of it was it was brought out to try and, in a sense, knock off the front pages, if you like, this uh, and sideline the whole, you know, historical rape allegations against a minister. I think that was perhaps partly why it got tended this way. It seemed to backfire on the Prime Minister. It was a very ratty press conference, which, again, all that really sought to do was sort of cloud out the the enormity uh, and the importance of this issue. The Prime Minister said it will be front and centre for him. Um, but really, I don't think we've gotten much real um, clue yet from the government what it's planned to do. There was no commitment from the government. I pushed the aged care minister, Richard Colbeck, on this the next day, whether they will accept all the, all the recommendations, certainly all the recommendations around staffing levels and accountability and regulation, whether they'll accept them. No commitment on that. In fact, the aged Care Minister Richard Colbeck the next day said, you know, he was happy that they've got this because it gives them the imprimatur to act. Well, Patricia, the federal government always has the imprimatur to act on aged care. It is its duty to run the aged care system. Uh, these problems that we that are defined in this in this eight volumes are not new. There've been many many reports. They've basically, at the end of the day, all come back to staffing, skills level, payment, um, funding into the system and regulation of the system. That's where we're at now. I don't think the, uh, the government really has given us any further clue on how it's planning to progress this. 
So the big issue will be funding, right? Paying for this. Uh, and there's a huge funding requirement and the management of that is going to be huge. Now, some of the major recommendations are that Australia needs this new Aged Care Act to underpin reform and set out rights for older people, greater transparency, like a cop cop that actually tr- really, really monitors this system um, that can really actually ensure that these kinds of things we've seen happen and the ex, you know the reports that we've seen four corners do brilliant work do not get repeated changing the way restraints are used on residents um you know obviously improved workforce conditions and dealing also with the the waiting list for home care packages so you know ensuring that people don't wait for more than a month for mm-hmm. those packages as well so that's really important and then there's of course the idea of of a levy um sort of medicare style levy so that we can pay for it that's going to be contentious as well but i mean my view is unless you sort of build in an ongoing way to fund a much more generous system that that ensures that old people are not left behind as they have been in this country, then you're always going to be dealing with this situation where governments look to kind of cut corners and that has led to, I think, dangerous outcomes. Well, I mean, well, let's put it in perspective. We already fund there's something more than $20 billion of taxpayers' money goes into the system now every year. Uh, the commissioners are reckoning on their sort of cheapest estimate, their lowest estimate, an extra between 5 to $9 billion a year, and it could be more if the government managed to somehow recruit and train the staff along the ratios of, you know, formal trained and registered nurses per nursing home per shift that the Royal Commission is recommending. Recommending. These are massive dollars, some suggestion of, you know, in 30 years' time, $131 billion a year. So we're talking about a lot of money. The government's giving every indication it doesn't like the levy idea. I'm not sure why the Australian public has sort of accepted a Medicare levy. We accepted an NDIS levy. Would we not accept this? Um, ultimately, we're all going to need this at one stage. Um, but there's now talk about, you know, whispers around the government's looking at some kind of means, but means testing um, payment for your aged care. That might be valid and, and fair, but what does that look like? Does it mean you need to, uh, you know, put down more of the value of your of your family home? That goes to estate planning, I suppose, and changes to that, or use more of your superannuation pension. All of these are going to be contentious issues for the government to work out, and they say we're going to have the plan, or some of the plan, a good deal of it anyway, in the budget in May, which is not far away. So, you know, no clue yet, but not long to wait, really. No. So balls in the government's court now. Uh, They have to do something. There's a budget looming in May uh, where presumably most of the work would be done and they would have to outline a kind of, well, it would have to be the centrepiece of the budget if they were to show, you know, that they take this seriously. They've already committed, what, nearly nearly half a billion dollars immediately to this. But the, the work now is real and, I think, imminent, immediate. There can be no more delays. All right, I think it's time to bring in our guest. Should we bring her in? Let's do it. <laughs> Catherine Murphy, political editor for Guardian Australia and, well, you know, a friend of the podcast. Welcome to the party room. <laughs> it's always lovely to be with you both. Yes, friend of the party room, has her own wonderful podcast herself. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Catherine, let's go first again to that press conference from the Attorney-General Christian Porter where he denied all the allegations. If you could just imagine for just 
and I know that you know we're all cynics, and this is this is a hard and tough and fast environment that we're all. But just imagine for a second that it's not true. That for whatever reason, the recollection and the belief, which I'm sure was strongly held, is just not true. Just imagine that for a second. After that, the Prime Minister backed up. His Attorney-General said he um, said he backed his position um, and said, and certainly backed him in terms of the Attorney-General's argument there that needs to be strict adherence to the rule of law and that's why he won't stand aside. Here's the Prime Minister. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. There's not another process. There is the rule of law. There is not the mob process. There is not the uh, tribe has spoken process. That's not how we run the rule of law in Australia. We run the rule of law based on police, on courts, on judicial systems, on rules of evidence, on presumption of innocence. So Catherine, that's it. The Prime Minister standing by the AG. The process is the process. And we've reached the end of the process, he says, because that was the police and that's it. <laughs> is that good enough? Yes. Uh, no. Uh, look, I am as big a fan uh, of the rule of law as the next person, uh, and I'm not saying that flippantly. Uh, the rule of law literally is uh, the foundation of liberal democracies and it's it's the difference between uh, order and chaos. So I completely acknowledge the rule of law point. However, it doesn't deliver in this instance because uh, the complainant, the person who has le levelled this allegation against Christian Porter, sadly, tragically, is now dead. So uh, her allegations can't be tested through a normal rule of law process. Uh, now, her mates insist that she wanted her allegations tested. Uh, she withdrew them before her very tragic and untimely death. Uh, so we don't know, Fran, Patricia, we mm -hmm. don't know uh, what this woman wanted but the people who knew her for 30 years, who knew her best, who had helped her manage her own dreadful pain and anxiety uh, over the, the 12 months before her death, are very much of the view that she wanted uh, this complaint to be dealt with. So we, we're basically hard up against the limits of what a rule of law process can deliver. And the problem with the Prime Minister's framing of this is that he's saying it's rule of law or bust. Now, that's not true. Uh, in, in corporations, in, uh, in the High Court, uh, in, in lots of different environments, uh, allegations of uh, impropriety of various types are tested in very fair, arm's length, low key, often private and, and, and necessarily so, processes that deliver a determination or deliver a, a landing point that th there is no way of resolving these different accounts. So I think given the seriousness of the allegations, given uh, that this uh, woman can no longer speak for herself, given that uh, she has a bunch of very respectable, thoughtful, sober friends who have basically entered the public domain reluctantly in order to do right by their now deceased friend. And given 
Christian Porter's position. He is the first law officer of the land. And I actually think why I find this a bit strange is that I think a well-constituted process would actually defend Christian Porter's interests. Uh, the Attorney-General has been very, very clear. He categorically denies uh, the allegation. He said they didn't have a relationship, there was, there was not a sexual encounter between them, consensual or otherwise, just didn't happen. Now, Christian Porter, in my view, is also entitled to have a process that enables him in a structured way to make his own case. The strange thing about Christian Porter's press conference, really, was that he railed about trial by media. Mm. He railed about having this resolved in some sort of chaotic way in the court of public opinion. And, and that, of course, is, is terrifying for somebody who is innocent. Yet that is all he's prepared to submit to. Well, that's uh, all that's happening. That is the only all, exactly. offer that, that now exists. So what exactly. does a well-constituted process look like then? Because the Prime Minister says there's no precedent that it goes outside of, of the, the, you know, the mechanisms we've built up as a liberal democracy. Does it? Have, uh, it do, is it setting up a new standard, um, Catherine? And if, if it is setting up a new standard, the Attorney-General says it's a standard that we should be you know, concerned by, but is it perhaps a standard that the community now is demanding? Well, I think that's it's an important point, um, PK, that, that that you've raised. The point is that there there are a set of mores now, societal, cultural mores, that have shifted in the Me Too era. We do see this this quite profound societal shift that was articulated uh, with incredible grace, dignity, and courage by Grace Tame, the Australian of the Year at the National Press Club this week. So, I think mores have shifted. And, and we all need to recognise that. But in terms of the un, unprecedented nature of the process, well, I, I'm sorry, I just don't buy that. <laughs> These processes occur in the private sector all the time. These processes don't assume uh, that somebody is guilty and they need to disprove an allegation that they can't possibly disprove. I think you're was... right, but they haven't really happened in politics, have they? No, well, no, and no, that's that's true. Um, but <laughs> that leads us back to parliamentary culture, it does. doesn't it, ladies? Yeah. And whether or not parliamentary culture is keeping keeping pace with the culture that exists in mm. the world outside politics, and it's demonstrably so, not. That's what's well, what's, sh what's actually being exposed what, at the moment. Exactly. This is what's at the root of this whole conversation, that this is what sits at the root of this whole conversation. Um, so yeah, look, Yes, but there's, uh, still a, there's still a problem, isn't there? I mean, Christian Porter must have said, what, three or four times yesterday uh, when asked about an inquiry, how it couldn't work, how can he disprove something uh, yeah. that he didn't do? And then legal minds will say, well, it's not, and I think you just mentioned it there, Catherine, this is not about the onus of proof, the burden of proof shifting uh, to the, uh, the person alleged of this. But then if you look beyond that, say we do set up an inquiry, it does happen behind closed doors, there is questioning, some esteemed person, um, maybe former judge or something, um, weighs up, that's the, that's the term being used, weighs up the, the body of evidence, uh, mindful that 
one the complainant cannot be questioned because she's not alive, um, yeah. but could question the AG. Well, then what? What, what if the what if it's unresolved? What if there's no resolution at the end of that? Well, then what? Well, it's well, it's it, it's look. I don't know. I mean, and obvi- obviously, not. not None of us can prejudge a process that the Prime Minister says he doesn't intend Mm. to constitute and a process that hasn't reported. I have no idea what such a process would, would deliver by way of a finding. But I understand your point, Fran, in the sense that, you know, why, why sort of construct a, a process that uh, that that may not lead to any conclusion, mm. that may not give anybody, may not clear anybody's name, or or, or provide some sort of um, ad hoc justice. But well, that's, that's right, that's actually... because ultimately here the end game is, you know, will it be that the Attorney General can carry on being the first lawmaker of this country? I mean, that's what. That's why people are calling for an inquiry because they say we haven't had enough testing yet. Basically, isn't well, it, it? well, well, he has a he has a special position and special responsibilities for justice that do add a dimension to all of this. But in terms of the ad hoc justice point, which I think is sort of sitting kind of underneath Scott Morrison's rule of law defence, right? We can't just walk off rule of law and and. And construct what he calls ad hoc, the the mob or the tribe the making the mm. decision. The tribe making, which is a process nobody, as far as I'm aware, asked for or advocated. No. Um, in fact, I think there would be a degree. This, my point is that there would be a degree of comfort in stopping trial by media and reverse trial by media and putting it into a process where the various points of views can can be expressed. And uh, and a determination or a non-determination be reached. Mm. Now it's sort of like uh, it, it, even if uh, a, 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 an, an an independent inquiry by a you know former judicial type or somebody with legal expertise sort of ended up in a cul-de-sac where nothing can be known with any certainty, at least there has been. A process constituted in which everybody feels as though everybody's interests have been put, cross-examined, mm. defended. There is a degree of finality is not exactly the word I mean, mm. but it but it reaches a landing point. There's been a structure put around it, and a landing point is reached. And that's right because now, at the moment, you know, yes, we they keep talking about the police investigation, but the police haven't even spoken to the. Attorney General. No, by his own account. Now, I mean, there, there are a lot of uh, comparisons, and reasonably so, to uh, the process that uh, surrounded uh, allegations that were levelled against uh, the then opposition leader, Bill Shorten. Now, uh, in in that instance, uh, we had a, a, a complainant who is fortunately still among, among us. Uh, we had... Um, a politician. We had a full police process where statements were given, investigations were made. If normal police processes were followed, and I assume they were, the police would have produced a report, a brief of evidence for the DPP. There would have been a conversation about the likelihood of being able to secure a conviction or not. And then there is a landing point, right? Mm-hmm. There's not enough evidence to pursue or whatever, right? The, 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 the rule of law process there is sort, is sort of fully extended in in this instance we've had a we've had a sort of truncated rule of law process in that uh, the, the woman who is sadly deceased made contact with authorities she she was interviewed by them she prepared a statement it wasn't sworn it wasn't final uh, she is sadly no longer with us 
Uh, she withdrew the complaint and we have sort of conflicting accounts about why that should have happened and whether or not she actually wanted to or whether she was under extreme pressure. We've already talked at the beginning of the podcast, Fran and I, about the Bill Shorten comparison because the government's using this every day now, right? Now, you're right, there was a sort of process, but I do think there's a different community standard uh, now, and I think that makes sense because I think our, our, our understanding of these issues is evolving, and that's that's called society stupid. Like, we, we that's what we do, right? We, we learn and we improve and, and I, we all seek to. But perhaps just like there are calls for for Christian Porter to step down while there's an inquiry, perhaps Bill Shorten should have actually stepped down while there was a police investigation. Let's let's actually call it for what it is. Perhaps there was a sort of bipartisan power structure which which meant that there was a sort of closing of the ranks and and that perhaps wouldn't have happened in sport or in, in the corporate world. Yeah, it's a very reasonable and interesting point you make. Whether, um, whether that, uh, whether if those allegations were sort of um, in in the public domain now this year, as mm. opposed to even a couple of years ago, uh, how the, the sort of the difference in the treatment, and that reflects, as as you've said, PK, and where we were um, a couple of minutes ago in talking about how society is evolving in uh, relation to attitudes, you know, in relation to these allegations. So it's it's slightly imponderable but interesting whether or not um, if we could replay that story in mm. contemporary times, mm. whether he would have faced a different standard too. Yeah. The um, uh, Labor, Penny Wong I spoke to, but Labor generally are now coming in behind these calls for an inquiry. Penny Wong said, you know, this moment of serious national reckoning, women are saying enough and enough. And she says the Prime Minister needs to take responsibility and take leadership. And I asked her what that meant, short of an inquiry, what does taking leadership look like? And she sort of quipped, you know, you could start with reading the allegations. And that is, I think, uh, it points to an issue here that I think the government has, which is right along for the last few weeks, whether it was the Brittany Higgins allegations, um, this case, uh, the sense that perhaps the government isn't paying sort of due heed initially. Yes. And mm. did you were you struck by the fact the Prime Minister said it again? He said he was in the Sydney office and the dossier went to the Canberra office. I guess that could explain why he hasn't read it. But, you know, that, that he hasn't read the allegation, Does, is that an issue? Was that an issue for you when you heard that? Oh, I, I was sort of quite amazed by it mm. when he said it the first time. Really, particularly because he made the point that he was very angry that um, Linda Reynolds hadn't bothered to tell him about an allegation of rape mm. by a staffer in mm. Parliament House. So he was very angry he wasn't told about this, but then he didn't read the dossier mm. on these I other allegations sort of, about his own minister. Like if we pull ourselves out of the weeds just for a tick, um, I think uh, the danger the Prime Minister runs with all of this is that uh, that uh, every every woman at some point in her life, regardless of how old she is, uh, who who she votes for, what society she's part of, uh, whether she's got kids or hasn't, whether she likes Netflix or Stan, uh, you know, whatever. Um, has had an experience in their life, either very trivial or very serious, where they have tried to be heard and they have and they have not been listened to by a man. Mm. I think every woman in the country has had a variant of that experience, and I I don't know if the prime minister understands that uh, that 
there will be a lot of women in the country who are hearing what he says differently from what he means. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, there are a lot of women who uh, who will be following this these stories in Canberra, women who would not normally follow the events in politics at all. I think this is these are both, but Brittany Higgins and this terrible case, uh, are, are cut through stories that basically encourage very, very busy women who have caring responsibilities, professional responsibilities, looking after parents. Uh, I think a lot of people will be looking up and listening because they bring an element of their own life experience to this. The problem for the government is we are in a particular point of point in time where uh, you know, the, the time's up language that was used for the Me Too movement, time's up for the way that these issues have been handled. And I feel like that, that, that really has been very much pronounced by the other parallel issue that the Prime Minister's been defending. Um, Scott Morrison being asked about reports that Defence Minister Linda Reynolds called the alleged rape victim, Brittany Higgins, uh, a lying cow... Um, to her staff. This was leaked. The Australian newspaper reported it. Uh, Scott Morrison confirmed that she made the offensive remarks, but he said that Linda Reynolds apologised to the staff not long after and before they were made public. Uh, he says the comments were offensive, but she deeply regrets them and she doesn't need to go. Um, he doesn't condone them, but she doesn't need to go. Uh, and he also clarified that that you know that they were were referring to um, Higgins' allegation, not her core allegation of sexual assault, but instead about her characterization of the level of support that the government had had given her. But let's just get this clear. Here is the minister where where the the alleged rape happened in her office, calling the victim of this heinous crime a cow. No denial of that. It did happen. There's been no apology as far as I can see. At this stage, we're recording on a Thursday morning to Brittany Higgins. Minister's off on stress leave. This is extraordinary, isn't it? I have no words. Well, there are no words. It's breathtaking. Yeah, I have no words. Uh, I understand that people are under a degree of scrutiny and personal stress that must feel excruciating for them. I understand that. I understand that Linda Reynolds thinks that uh, she did what she could in relation to the complaint that were that was made. Uh, I understand how frustrating it must be if you genuinely have acquitted yourself to yourself and you believe that your actions in a duty of care sense have been misrepresented uh, in the public arena. That would be incredibly hard for anybody to have to process and deal with. So I understand that Linda Reynolds, like the rest of us, is a human being and a human being facing incredible stress and pressure. But I cannot believe those words were uttered. Another thing it's hard to believe to are reports of the comments made by the Chief of the Defence Force, Angus Campbell. He dropped into the new um, ad for intake of students with a few words of advice, telling them apparently he wanted them to learn this lesson early because too many young cadets' lives have been ruined by sexual assault. And he had this lesson, the four A's, he said, attractive, alone, alcohol and after midnight. Now, not surprisingly, some heard that with shock and as victim-blaming, 
The CDF is a male champion of change. He travels the world speaking to male leaders about, you know, stamping out violence against women. Um, he says he was misconstrued. He was just trying to offer some advice. But, you know, attractive? What, you shouldn't be too attractive? You shouldn't be alone? You shouldn't be drinking alcohol? I mean, it's the wrong emphasis. I think what really desperately needs to happen here, and the Prime Minister's sort of out of the same frame, he's, he's been talking about protect as a frame when, he, when he, he said it on International Women's Day. Protect, respect, of some other thing. Uh, obviously, who could argue with protect? Uh, who could argue with that? However, it's the wrong way to come at the problem. And we've seen that sort of manifest in the CDS remarks too, in the sense that uh, I, I, a cha male champion of change, have to help protect women from their vulnerabilities by lecturing them about their vulnerabilities. It's the wrong frame, guys. <laughs> Start looking at these things differently. Uh, if we if we create a more equal society, if the the respect and protect will take care of themselves, <laughs> what what women are asking for is for men, good men, to move their bloody plumb line. They are they, they are trying to think how can I how can I protect these vulnerable mm. people? Protect how us can I stop this happening? By, is what they're trying. Yeah, to. How can I? But you exactly. know what? How can, it doesn't yeah. stop it happening. Even if it was all to happen, right? I don't know. You stop yourself being attractive. You you, you don't drink any alcohol. Or the men can continue, of course. Uh, you you know you don't go home alone. That doesn't stop rape and sexual assault. It is a furphy. It doesn't stop anything. The only thing that's going to stop it is stopping, you know, teaching uh, sort of sexist concepts that uh, live on the continuum, which ultimately can lead to sexual violence. That's what you've got to stop. The only yeah, thing I that's mean, going to stop it is, um, you know, rape is about power and respect needs to be embedded in the relationships. And, you know, we are so far from there. That's what's going to stop it. So the emphasis is on the wrong side of this. Yeah. It just, you know, it's dial P for patriarchy, boys. Well, we've dialed J for journalism. Um, thank you so much, uh, K for Catherine, for being with us. Really appreciate your time. Okay, no worries. Thanks, Catherine. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. I'm pleased question time is happening here as well, Fran, and we've got this... Uh, question. This week's question comes from Sam, who asks whether there's anything shady about Peter Dutton's actions in choosing not to tell the Prime Minister about Brittany Higgins' allegations. Uh, was this an underhanded play by Dutton to bruise the Prime Minister's position, says Sam? Mm. Mm. Machiavellian. That's a conspiracy theory, exactly, Machiavellian. Um, I don't think it was an underhanded play to bruise the Prime Minister's position. Whether it was decision uh, just to keep this sort of muck away from the PM, I mean, we have seen a very unusual number of ministers and senior staffers and senior bureaucrats who knew about the allegation of, um, of a rape in the minister's office two years ago and didn't tell the Prime Minister. It's unusual. Um, the Prime Minister says there's no culture of, you know, plausible deniability. It's not It's not as if he had, runs a culture of, you know, don't ask, don't tell. In fact, he expressed some kind of fury, really, that he wasn't informed about this, which I find surprising, PK. He was so cross, clearly, at uh, Linda Reynolds, the then Defence Personnel Minister, for not telling him about this. And yet, 
when he did get the allegations against uh, more recently in that dossier naming the historical rape allegation about Christian Porter, he actually got that document in his hands and he didn't read it himself. And when he heard rumours about that last November about one of his own ministers, he didn't follow them up. So, you know, he didn't follow them up there, but he's really cross that Linda Reynolds didn't tell him about this allegation of rape within the minister's office a couple of years ago. I think there's a bit of an inconsistency there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty big inconsistency. But yeah, I don't I don't know if it was Peter Dutton being underhanded. I don't, not, I'm not convinced of, of that, but there are certainly questions to ask about the way that the Prime Minister uh, was informed, not just by Peter Dutton, but by, you know, a range of people. And these are the questions that have been asked and the sort of, you know, don't ask, don't tell culture, which I think has been very much exposed and is a huge issue. Um, you know, I reckon I'd want to know. I'd want to know everything. All right, well, keep sending your questions in. It's it's actually quite lovely to read your messages, your questions. Um, you can send them to the hashtag The Party Room on social media or you can email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Yep, keep them coming, folks. That's it from us from The Party Room this week. We will be back in your feeds next week. Until then, see you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.